it's it's not like it was in the old days. I feel like where you would have these transmittals that need to get hand delivered to the architect and blah, 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 and it was just a nightmare. I mean, I remember my dad telling me he used to have to carry a bag of quarters as a superintendent just to make <laughs> phone calls at the yeah. local payphone. And I'm oh like, dude, how did you guys even build these things? I'm like. Welcome to the Real Construction Owners Podcast, where we interview real construction owners doing big things. Today, we have a very special guest, Joseph Simile, the owner of Simile Construction Services out of California. He's a master at closing big deals, commercial and government. He's going to break $35 million this year. Today, we're going to talk about investments. We're going to talk about government contracts. We're going to talk about best processes, and you're going to hear some stuff that's going to blow your mind. So stay tuned. What's up, Joseph? How you doing today, bro? Good. How are you? Man, I'm blessed and highly favored. Thanks for asking. So what's good? What's good? Tell us a story. I want to know before we get into the goods, talk to our audience, contractors, CEOs, government contractors, you know, what were you doing before you got into construction? I was uh, running a beer and wine supply company and um, it didn't make any money, but it was a great hobby. Uh, kind of got got to a point where my uh, my dad and I, my dad ran a construction company since I was probably a junior in high school. I got out of college. I went to school for construction management, but didn't really wasn't really big on the construction side. So I was like, I'm gonna open up a hobby shop. So I bought this little small beer and wine supply store with a couple of buddies. Ran that for a few years. Um, just realized I didn't really like it wasn't as fast paced as I wanted it uh, talked to my dad and saw to kind of see if there was a position he uh, pretty much gave me an allowance <laughs> brought me on board and about four years ago I took it over um, and uh, it's been great dude it's been a wild ride ever since for sure nice so your first year in business you took it over zero experience in construction walk us through some lessons you learned some of your successes what what happened your first year of business? Uh, when I first started, uh, when my dad had opened up the company when we were in my, probably my junior year of high school, um, and I'd work with them back and forth throughout high school and college. Uh, when I first started full time after I got rid of the beer and wine supply company, uh, I was it was incredibly humbling. I I remember having an anxiety attack, like in my like little walk-in closet in my apartment because I got humbled that like all hell by a subcontractor was like, Hey, you're just this boss's son. You have no idea what you're doing. He was absolutely right. And I was sitting there trying to boss him around. And so that was, uh, that was my first real introduction to like supervision on a real job site. It was a large, large, probably a seven at the time for us, about 6,000 square foot um, CPA office uh, here in Modesto. And I just got worked by a bunch of the subs and I wasn't humble at all. And uh, I almost quit. I was just like, I don't know if I can handle this stuff. This is just insane. But I think uh, I think with a little time and, and kind of understanding like how to work with people and being a little bit more humble of the fact that like I am honestly was given a silver spoon with my dad's company and just an amazing opportunity. Um, I was able to kind of bring it back and really create some good rapport with the subs and with our team now. And I've been doing it for... 20 some odd years. So it's been, 
it's been a lot of fun, but it was definitely the first, I would say the first like five, six years was really tough. Went through a couple of down, we went through that downturn in the economy back in like 2006, seven ish. Um, that was brutal to see. Um, that was one of those times where I was like, I don't even know if I want to do construction. It's just, you're not getting paid anything. I had two kids at home. My wife wasn't working and we had to do salary reductions across the board. And it was just like, man, this is brutal. Um, but being able to kind of see how my dad was able to navigate those waters, it kind of brought me, um, brought me back in it. And now I'm really enjoying it. Obviously construction has been great the last few years. Um, we've had ebbs and flows since, um, but we right now we're seeing it's still popping pretty crazy. I get a little nervous about what's coming up in the economy in the future, but um, still looks good and looks solid right now. So you guys focus primarily on uh, commercial, residential. <laughs> what, how's your portfolio split? Yeah, we started off doing residential, some high-end residential stuff, uh, got out of it. Now we only do commercial. Um, honestly, I wouldn't touch residential with a 10-foot pole. Uh, the clients are just... The client, when you're in your own home, the it's so much more difficult to work with a client because they're just very particular, which is totally fine. And I get it. When you're doing a commercial facility, owners really just want to get open so that they can start making money. So they're more reasonable and about, hey, what do we want to do to get done? The changes are generally speaking a lot less. So we really love the commercial industry. So we'll do, uh, we've done a lot of like uh, nonprofits. I love doing the nonprofits. Um, honestly, we're a faith-based company and the nonprofit sector has just been amazing for us. We do a lot of churches. We're doing two churches, three churches right now. Um, and we're actually bidding on a third one, a fourth one right now too. So do a lot of nonprofit stuff. We do also do a lot of commercial, like just a lot of commercial like uh, facilities, like we're doing the Modesto Transit Center, which is that's a, a government building. That's a government. That's building, a government. Right? Yeah. That's so a that's government a government building. contract. Yep. Yeah, it is. And, public works. and so that's awesome because I I love government contracts and it's fascinating. And so many contractors wanted to get into that. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I'm curious. You said you're bidding out uh, work for these nonprofits, these churches, walk us through your process. Uh, do you have salesmen? Do you have estimators? How are you doing this? How are you acquiring these deals? Well, most of it for us is a lot of word of mouth at this point. We have, we've had established company for a long time. So we get a lot of word of mouth. We've been in business for over 20 years. Um, but generally it's a reputation thing. Um, what we've tried to do is just create an honest and uh, faith-based company throughout. And so a lot of the nonprofits kind of ring home with that because their goals are to help. What I've seen with the nonprofit arena is that they have um, uh, with a nonprofit arena is they get up, they get kind of screwed by a lot of GCs. Um, and so you can see it and you, you hear these stories from people just like, man, they just did, were not taken care of. So what we've tried to do is we've tried to kind of step into that nonprofit arena. We are a, we are a for-profit company. So we're going to make profit, uh, you know, at the end of the day. But I think we can bring that level of trust to the clients where they know that they're not getting screwed. So we do from our sales side, we will reach out and we'll find we get uh, from architecture firms. We have a lot of architecture firms that specialize in nonprofit. So we'll focus on those. But a lot of times that they they come to us and they say we have a design build project. Most of them are design built. Uh, so we'll work with them on the design from the napkin all the way to handing them over the final keys. Um, we usually try to get pre-qualified with a diocese or with that specific church in some way, shape or form. 
once we're pre-qualified, we'll work on the plans with them. If it's not, if it's a hard bid, we'll provide a hard bid proposal against other bidders and uh, they will go through a selection process. Ultimately, our goal is just to get to the table with the client. Um, I don't claim to be the cheapest contractor out there. And I'll be very honest with my clients. If they're looking for a cheap contractor, I'm probably not the right guy. Um, if But if they're looking for like amazing quality, if they're looking for open book style contracts, fantastic accounting, fantastic management. Like that's the type of contractor we are. So our goal is basically get a really good competitive proposal that's that's hopefully at the lowest, but if it's not, if we just want it to be in the ballpark, our goal is really just to sit down with the clients and kind of walk them through what our process is. Um, nine times out of 10, it's specifically recently, all the jobs are just way over budget, right? Um, construction prices is skyrocketing. And in addition to that, with interest rates going up, even the affordability is just not there. That's why I get kind of nervous about what's going to happen with the economy later on. But um, so we spend a lot of time doing value engineering after the fact. And that's kind of one of our, that's kind of what we specialize in. So we'll drop a dollar amount on them with them. They're going to be, it's this shock and they're like, oh my gosh, this is oh my so, God. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. This is so expensive. We're like, yeah, I know. And so we're, and, but for us, we try to be just very transparent. So we will show them literally every single sub bid that we have. Um, we say, hey, this is, we got three to five bids per trade. The market, the market is what's driving your price. It's not us. I mean, we're a very small percentage of that management cost, you know? Um, so what we're looking for is just to show them, hey, this is what your job costs. Let's validate what your job cost is based off of what the market is telling us with these sub bids. And then we say, then we say, hey, look, if we're, if you want to entertain with us, we can go to the drawing board with you, provide some value engineering options. And that's generally speaking, what's been happening on every single job that we've been doing on in the private side and not only nonprofit, but also other private jobs. And we just work through value engineering options, whether it's managing the site work differently based on souls report recommendations, uh, changing out this uh, type of units that they're doing, material finishes, um, removing scope in some cases. Um, so there's various ways to do it. I just did one. I just actually had a meeting yesterday with uh, it's not a nonprofit. It's a health center out in Merced where we proposed on an eight, $9 million project, $678,000 worth of value engineering options. Uh, the owner elected to take about half of them, right, to just help them bring that budget down. Um, but they're moving forward with the contract. It even is over budget for them. They were able to come up with the money. But um, one of the biggest issues I'm seeing right now in the industry is just owners, if we're the lowest bidder on a job, uh, the valuation, we could be the lowest bidder on a $5 million project, but the bank valuation is saying it's only worth $4 million. So now the owners are having to not only bridge the gap between our, our base low bid and what the highest valuation the loan will be on it. They also have to do the, you know, 70-30 gap on the loan as well. So they're coming up with like massive amounts of money to be able to do it. So we're really having to spend a lot of time on with our clients, just focusing on how to reduce budgets, but still meet their needs, right? Um, that's why we stay in the commercial arena, right? Because you can't do that in a, you can't do that in a, in a private arena, right? Because uh, on like, uh, I'm sorry, the commercial, you can't do that on like residential side because the residential yeah. side is like, people just want what they want, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. On the commercial side. And they, side, got, they, and just, they have a tight they, budget and they have a tight exactly. budget where when you say commercial, you, you're you saying commercial, private and government. That's mm -hmm. what, when you say yes. the word commercial, you mean all three of those, correct? Yes. Yes. Just not residential because on the residential side, they want what they want. On the commercial side, usually there's 
an income related to the work, right? They're building it out because there's some sort of income or some sort of benefit that they really need for the work that isn't, you know, more square footage in their home, right? That's just solely, there's a value that comes in there. So it's easier to, it's easier to work through the budgets with them. Um, and, and usually they're pretty more, the larger the value of the project, usually you have a more savvy client um, which is we love having savvy clients because it's easy to walk through issues on plans because they're they understand it. They understand that there's going to be issues with plans. They understand that they most likely are going to deal with change orders and we'll work with them on everything. Keeping everything open book with them usually keeps that level of trust uh, that they need to be continue to move the project forward. So let's talk about um, you mentioned to me some awesome projects that you've done for the government. You had a $6 million historic project. You also had that $10 million HUD project. Walk us through some of those details. Uh, how'd you get the deal? Um, and then we're going to talk about uh, really unique tactics and, and finding the best subcontractors. Yeah. Uh, the, the government projects, the unique ones that we've done are the historical renovation projects. There's not a lot of contractors that just want to do those. Don't that even want to do those because you're dealing with like cataloging, like siting. And so like I had a job in Livermore. We did the Livermore Transit Station where we relocated a an old historic building down to their new depot, their transit depot. Um, and it was an old train station historic building. We literally had to relocate lights and everything in the street as we shipped the building down. So like all the street lights were getting moved. We did in the middle of the night. It was incredible, fun project. But a lot of you don't you don't run into a lot of competition uh, when you're doing these historical projects because they take a lot of overhead to manage. So we target some of the historical uh, government projects because usually they're well funded. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, they're, di they're just difficult projects to manage. So your competition is a lot smaller. So that's one of the things we kind of do on the historical side. On the other governmental projects that we would do, like we just finished like the Stan Connie Recorder's Office in downtown Modesto. Um, it's not necessarily a feel-good project for us. Like it's nothing, there's nothing fantastic, nothing cool about it, but it's definitely one of those utilitarian-based projects that you can get in and out. It allows us to keep our pencil sharp, you know, and make sure that we're competitive in the industry. So we find a lot of our bids on the exchanges, they're all publicly, uh, when we're doing the government work, they're all public style projects. So you find them on some sort of public exchange. They're mandated to be, you know, publicly put out there for all GCs to bid. And then we try to pick the ones that either fit well with the area that we're working within or uh, fit well with our expertise, uh, where it would come for like historical innovations and where we can see where where we have a competitive advantage of some sort. That's why I like government contracts because there's niches that not very many contractors know know about or even want to bid. And yeah. you can really provide an excellent service like Hawaii. We've done some in Alaska. We've done chillers. I love chiller projects because, you know, not very many contractors are going to go after those historic, like you said. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have any set aside status for your company? What do you mean set aside? Like hub zone <laughs> or y'all A-Day, veteran owned, you woman owned. No, no, we don't. My, uh, we don't. That's have awesome. Any, so people, people think, people think, oh, I got to have a set aside to win contracts, but Talk to our audience contractors. You don't have a set aside. And in y'all's career, approximately, how many millions of dollars have y'all won in government contracts? 
Oh gosh. Uh, well, first of all, we, we don't do a lot of set aside that I think the set aside stuff is a bunch of BS personally. <laughs> like I just, I don't see, I've never seen a job where it's like, Oh, we're going to win it because, or lose it because we have a DBBE or something like that. Like I've never had a job that we've like lost or didn't win because of some sort of set aside. Um, I've had one project where we tried to like grab all those benefits during bid time, but it's so hard to do on the uh, on the government jobs because you have to pick the lowest responsible and responsive bidder period like uh, because you're competing against everyone so though i think as much as those like set asides are great for people um i don't as a gc i don't find a whole lot of benefit to it at all yeah um, absolutely yeah i mean i just i think it's kind of more for a sub base for smaller jobs great like do it some and a lot of a, a lot of like government contracts used to give out discounts uh on bids if you had you know 50 percent of your job with dbbe or some sort of like women's labor force or whatever it is but they don't even do that much anymore like you you rarely see those like discounts that you'll get on bids as far as how much uh government work we do it it waves. Um, right now we're heavily, we have probably three, one, two, we have about $15 million in contracted government work. So and let's freaking getting, go, dude. Way to go, dude, man. Yeah. yeah so it's great. So we're, it's great because the money's there. That's, what's great about the government work is you never have to worry about the client running out of money, right? It's, it's always going to be there. Private side is yeah. the private side is a little bit different. Okay. We're going to dive into the money in just a little bit, but before we dive into the money, now we're getting to the technical stuff. This is the stuff. <laughs> you contractors want to hear. So as a government contractor, let's specifically talk about that. How are you finding the best subcontractors? Are you calling suppliers and getting subs? And if so, like what are some of your tactics? We use we use a program called Building Connected, and it's it's an online source for subcontractors. Uh, you can do it has a private exchange where you can post jobs privately within the exchange, which is great. And then all the subs that are connected with Building Connected can see it. It's a pretty large resource for subcontractors. There's a bunch of them out there that you can do. I don't know if Building Connected honestly is the best one, but it's definitely been great for us. Um, additionally, it's on the public side, as long as you can put your name on the exchanges saying that you're bidding the work, you're going to get a lot of bids on bid. We, to help get, getting a lot of bids and a lot of coverage is one part of it and one facet of it. But on those government jobs, you literally, you are, you're getting all the same bids. All the GCs are getting the same bids from the same subcontractors. So your goal as a GC, when you're doing government work is to create relationship and rapport with your sub base so that you can work with them on bid day to make sure that they're getting the right scope, that they have the right dollars in, that they're that if there is a super low number in there, that you can work with maybe a sub that you're more confident with and say, why is this guy so low? Like what is going on? And find out maybe the guy doesn't have the right scope and make sure that he can disqualify himself out and pull his bid. Because a lot of the subs, what you run into on the public side that's scary, you know, what scares a lot of GCs is you'll get like a a subcontractor, electrical subcontractor will throw out a quote, but he'll be 30% lower than every other electrical bid you have out there, right? And it's like, well, there's there's only two ways that he's doing it. Either he's buying the job or he's missed the scope. There's only two real options there. So you got to work with that low bidder because he's out to the other GCs and you need that same competitive advantage that the other GCs are, right? So working with that low bidder, if you know the guy, it's great because you can communicate with him and you be honest with him, right? You say, hey, you're 
incredibly low is your number good we don't want to have problems on this job um i'm gonna like he says i'm gonna be forced to list you because i imagine other people will or you need to pull your bid, right? And so if you have good rapport with these subs, you can talk to them, work through their scopes with them and get them to get more reasonable numbers in there that make sense. And then also, because they're, because they're delivering their bids amongst the crowds of GCs, they can kind of level the playing field with the bid. Nice. Have you ever uh, sought out the help f from a rec for a recommendation from a supplier to find a good subcontractor? Yes. Yeah, we do that too. Um, we'll go through suppliers that they are like, a lot of suppliers will have specific subs that they love to work with. Um, usually they will not tell you unless you have a good rapport with the supplier who that who the, the top notch ones, they'll just give you a list of list of the guys that they supply to. Um, but yeah, creating those supplier relationships are huge. And if you can communicate directly with those suppliers about who their bidders are and who's who they who they're providing bids to, it can help you kind of source out some more bids on bid day for sure. Now, a little more advanced, um, you know, I know that a lot of it's union and commercial. So are you familiar with using agc.org or abc.org to find subcontractors? Yes. Yeah, we don't do it. Um, we don't use it on that side. On the public work side, I never have an issue getting subs. Um and we'll you do, do that we'll through do, building. You do that through Building Connect, Building Connected, or the public bid exchanges. Like they have, like a like a they have a bunch of public bid exchanges locally that will will find it, and all the subcontractors are on them. So if you post that you have a job bidding on a specific day, usually the city or the county or the government will post it in some way, shape, or form. And if you say that you're a bidding GC, you will get sub bids from them on it. Nice. Um, the only time you really need to use like ABC and stuff is when you have to self-perform the work out on site. So I don't, I don't do a lot of self-perform work. I'm a paperwork GC. I like I, heavy management. Yeah. Heavy management. Um, I do carry a small self-perform crew. Um, and so we'll use our self-perform crew for stuff, but generally speaking, most of the work will, will get out to other subcontractors or labor forces. Now, do you have any stories where you were negotiating with a subcontractor that you could share with our audience that like it was heavy negotiation? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we negotiate every day with them. I mean, we were just negotiating uh, two days ago on it. A client came to me and says, hey, our project budget's 3% high. I'm like, all right, cool. So I called up every subcontractor and let them know if they want the job, they're going to drop their number by 3%. <laughs> like, and they're hard negotiations to have, especially with prices rising, right? Um, most of those negotiations, I mean, ag again, revolve around rapport, right? And then also, it's like a, a lot of the hard negotiations deal with when subcontractors have issues, right? So if they have issues on a job, I had an issue with a subcontractor recently on a job where the issue is large enough that it could bankrupt the subcontractor, right? So trying to figure out a way to keep this guy alive and going, but also not pull a ton of money out of my pocket is really, is really hard on the negotiation side because... At the end of the day, you're only as good as your sub base, right? So if you bankrupt your subs, that gets around pretty bad. And so then you'll start losing subs and you really want to make sure your subs are good. So I find as a GC, sometimes you got to come to the table with the subcontractors, even with their own errors, uh, to just keep your sub base. It does give you a lot of roadway with those subs though, right? So like the, in particular, this one sub. What happened? Here. What happened with that yeah. specific scenario? So, so in this subcontractor, we had an architect that released a set of drawings on, uh, basically what he did is he took a 24 by 36 set of drawings. He shrunk it down to an 11 by 17 set just so he could read it better on his printout on his desk. 
scanned them and then sent them out to the to the GCs to bid. But now they're not scalable at all, right? So the subcontractor, you can figure out the scaling if you use like your Bluebeam or anything like that. But you can't do it if you're printing out your plans, right? So what it when he's done that, he's taken away the ability to do hand hand scale takeoffs. And a lot of the subs that we work with, they're just old school GCs, man. They don't want to do it online, so they he took everything off. Realized the square footages were way off, and he missed all the siding by like five thousand square feet of siding. Just a massive, <laughs> massive hit. Oh and my so God. he comes in, and he comes in and, and we have pretty good relationships with all these guys. He comes in and says, look, we got a problem. We screwed up on this. We screwed up on this takeoff and we got a, you know, $30,000 issue on this job. Um, and I can't afford it. In addition to that, and I feel bad for this stuff. In addition to that, he also got robbed on the job site. He lost about $50,000 worth of material over a weekend on that job site. And because California. it's not California, welcome uh, to the dude, area. Yeah. Compton, maybe. Oh my God. That. They have a, they, <laughs> we're doing it. This is a, this is a, a credit union in a low income area. So we had already told the client, they really need to get security out there. It's going to delay the job. And that's what happened is that they came in, they just completely ripped us off. Um, it's, it's easy to get money back, like on builder's risk on those type of things when it's installed product. But if it's not installed, it's the subcontractor's risk. And so this sub is just like, look, man, I've lost over $60,000 right now. What do I do? Like, I just don't have the money for this. So we had You're to figure lucky out that a, you had that conversation. He didn't just bail. Yeah. Well, that's the that's why you have to have rapport, man. Like if you don't have rapport with these guys and they bail, you're screwed. That's so like what we had to do with him is like, okay, we need you to finish the job. What do we need to do to make this right? So we were able to get his books opened up with him, walk through what he needs to be able to get his costs paid for and dealt with that. We're going to try to make it up on other projects where he's going to give me, he's going to give me discounted rates on other projects where I can try to make some of that money back. But that's how you have to do it, man. You have to work with these subs and say, look, I know you got a problem. We have to figure it out over the long haul because the jobs independently can't bear the burden of these problems. So that's the type of negotiations we deal with um, with these guys. Bidding, bidding negotiations is a lot easier because it's like you're, you know where the number needs to be. You just need to figure out a way to get the scope dialed in properly with that subcontractor. And if there's value engineering associated with it and all that stuff, you can deal with that. But when it comes to problems, that's where the hard negotiations are because now you're saying, okay, how am I going to make up this cost? Do I, as a GC, do I want to go after this guy? Can I afford to help him out? Um, if I can't afford to help him out, how what am, what's going to happen to my sub base when this guy goes bankrupt because of these issues? Like, is he gonna is it gonna go out and other subs are gonna be like this GC just bankrupt the sub? I don't want to give him bids anymore. So you really have to play the balance specifically in the public arena, uh, but also in the private arena on taking care of your subs, man, because they'll stop bidding you. And they're the at the end of the day, man. If you're a paperwork GC like me, where you do heavy management, not a lot of self-perform, you're only as good as your sub base. That's, you're, mm. there's nobody, if you don't have a good sub base, you're screwed. So Yeah, it's so crucial. Contractors listening in, we're talking to you. You have to build a database of contractors, subcontractors. Like for myself, I have subcontractors in Hawaii, Alaska, Ohio, New York, all the places I've done government contracts. And so if one of those government contracts comes into my, vision mm -hmm. i can call them and say hey let's get this done i need a price and you got to have those good relationships so i'm curious 
Have you ever used a site visit sign-in sheet uh, on a government deal to call, pick up the phone or your estimators pick up the phone and find out who the GC is versus who the sub is and then find the sub to give you prices? Have you ever used a sign-in sheet where it says 10 people who went to the site visit and worked out a deal using that tactic? Absolutely. I, if you don't know who your competition is, what are you, I mean, what are you in the business for? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, we we uh, we do a lot of research on competition because um, if we find that we do a site visit and we find that there's a mom and pop GC bidding something like I don't I have overhead, um, like I have significant overhead. If there's a mom and pop GC bidding a job, I, they're going to beat me every single time. Like and it doesn't bother me at all. I just won't bid it at that point. So I really want to know as a GC who my competition is. So when we go to these site visits, we'll grab, find out who our competition is, and then we'll pull out of that competition and be like, okay, who are the subs that came to the site walk that are not GCs? And then we get those subs. Now we know those subs are engaged in the project because they spent time going to the job site. So now all we got to do is get a hold of them, get a hold of them, build some relationship and make sure we get their bids in. Absolutely. Yeah. And then from there, have you even went as far to say, hey, you were there. Who else should I be talking to? Like what other what else needs to get done? And then they give you other subcontractors that they've done business with. Have you ever done anything yeah. like that? Yeah, we they won't give us their competition, but they will give us people that they like working with. I yes. just had that on it. Yeah, I just had that on a commercial facility that um, we're doing. It's a, I call it the unicorn project. It is the largest job my company's ever pursued. We're in the middle of negotiating with the contract with the, co the company right now. It's $75 million um, apartment complex. Um, it's literally twice the amount of sales that we do in a year. This owner has just been, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know why I'm at this table. I have a total imposter syndrome with this job, but it looks like it's going to go to contract. So we'll see. But the, uh, I just had that, I just had that framer and i'm like hey man I'm, I'm looking for some good plumbers and and uh on these jobs who do you, because we couldn't find good plumbers for this project honestly the sub base associated with this apartment complex is just we don't have a sub base like that because we do our work is like you know at 15 million to like 5 million is our bailiwick um this job is at 75 million it's substantially higher than a project that we've ever done uh, we're taking a big stroke out. Right? I mean, we're swinging for the bleachers, so we'll see where it goes. But the sub, we didn't have a sub base. So what we that's exactly what we had to do. We called the framer and says, hey, who's the electrician? Do you like working with? Who's the plumbers? And so we actually got uh, the MEP team, the chemical, electrical, and plumbing team, all from the framer. And at the end of the day, all the bids for that team ended up being the, the right bids for the job. So now I have a list of subs that have worked together, know the issues, and specifically on these big ones. It's awesome, man. Let's on go! These, on these big ones, if your subs know each other, like for like the framers, like use this this plumber because he's not going to butcher my walls, right? Yeah. If you use this other plumber, then I'm going to add more money to my budget. And it's like, yeah. geez, dude. And specifically with these big jobs, because that amount of money, those errors, they repeat themselves. Like this is a nine, 10 building complex. So you miss it on one building, you multiply that issue times 10. And so like that, the numbers increase exponentially. So it was, that's a huge go to be able to like communicate with these subs about who do you like working with? Who are the people that, 
who are the people that you want to, that are going to bring you in more money, that are going to make you more efficient, right? And then how do I become that GC for you where you're giving me the better pricing and how am I managing you in a better way? You know what I mean? You really got to ask a lot of feedback from your subcontract base and really service them. I mean, you really have to, if you don't, once you, if a, if a subcontractor can make money working for you, if they can make, not only make money, they get paid uh, on a timely manner, like subs will go head over heels for you because there are GCs out there that struggle with timely payments, that struggle with uh, um, concise scheduling. So an efficient scheduling, like subs just, the, they end up charging more for those GCs than they do otherwise. We'll get discounts from subcontractors upwards of eight to 9% just because we're the GC that we're doing the work with. Cause we're just, we spend a lot of money on management and not a whole lot of money on self-perform. Now, as we grow, that may change. Uh, we may have to do more self-perform, but right now it's been pretty good from the paperwork side. We don't do a whole lot of, uh, we don't do a whole lot of self-performance right now. So love it. Love it. Now, last couple things on subcontractors. Um, well, with that being said, do you ever, do, do you have some type of follow-up system within your organization where you're following up, where your estimators are following up with contracting officers? So they see you as the contractor of choice and they're like, man, this guy checks up on me every 50, 45 days and you're, you're top of mind awareness to those contracting officers. Yeah, we, we do our best. Um, that is always a struggle. Uh, what we try to do is twice a year, we do a subcontractor appreciation. Uh, we just had one actually two weeks ago where we had in uh, 75 different subcontractors from the area, did a big lunch for them and just tried to create that rapport. Our estimators are our, are our relationship builders with our subs. Our contracts for simile construction, all of our contracts, basically what our estimating department does is they hand our operations department a package and say, these are the people that you should bring to contract. And then our operations department will review all the proposals that we have and they'll shake it out and see if there's any buyout, see if there's any misses that we had in estimating and stuff like that. So what we're constantly trying to do is provide feedback to our subcontractors about where they sit, right? So if we get, we usually will release any feedback to subcontractors. We'll release that feedback to subcontractors about where they stood after we've either been contracted or no, we haven't been contracted. Uh, and we'll give them that feedback back. So once we understand the results of the bid, then we'll go ahead and release feedback to the subcontractors about where they landed on the job. And then as we're doing our bids and as our estimators are making our phone calls to ask for additional pricing on other jobs, they're communicating with that same estimator or that subcontractor saying, hey, I just want to let you know where you stood on the other job. You were in third place. You were 10% high. Make sure you sharpen your pencil on this one, right? And okay. so we're able to build that. And so a lot of it happens really naturally. Uh, so there's no real like guy on the phone just trying to like create rapport it's more about hey we got a project i want to make sure that you know where you sat on the last one so that you can have a better opportunity on this one and hey by the way are you coming to our subcontractor appreciation party we got a lot of swag we want to give you you know what i mean yes so we we focus on our big focus with our estimators that we do is it's not the focus really isn't on the takeoff right the, the focus is on creating the relationship with the subcontractor if we can create solid relationships with subcontractors, 
our subs are going to do those takeoffs for us. And that's what mm -hmm. they do. And we rely on them for it, right? Uh, I've had subcontractors tell me, yeah, I want to include my my quantity takeoff into our contract. I was like, dude, you're the expert, man. I'm not going to sit here and be contracted for quantity. Are you either prepans and specs or you're not? That's the mm -hmm. reality of it. So I'm not going to include quantities in any sort of subcontract with any subcontractor. But you've got to have some good rapport with a subcontractor for him to be say, okay, I'm going to take full responsibility for my own takeoffs. I'm going to move for, this thing forward. For so, are you saying you do y'all and y'all scenarios like this? Do they are they pitching to y'all in their estimate materials and labor or just labor? Who's so talk to us materials about that? And labor it depends on the scope. Most of the time, if um, most of the you need to be real competitive, <laughs> if you need to be real competitive, I'm sure y'all just do just the labor. yeah. The only thing you have to watch out for is when you're buying product, like if you can put it on a subcontractor uh, to buy all the product, now you have the warranty with that subcontractor on any issues that happen later on down the road, like a year down the road and says, hey, I got a light that went out. The subcontractor is like, that's great. You're going to have to pay me to go out there and reinstall that light for you. But you can go get a free fixture because the fixture is under warranty. Now, if the subcontractor had bought that light, now he's responsible for the labor installed to be able to address the warranty claim. So we do our best to keep the, if we can manage it within the budget, we do our best for our subcontractors to purchase all the materials. But we'd be really prudent about the materials that we do purchase because anything that we purchase that we need to install, we as the company, as a GC, are going to have to warranty any of that work. So in the event there's a failure with that material, whatever that material is, we would have to go out a year later and go ahead and perform that work. So the more that we can belittle risk, and I would say anybody that's a, I mean like public works or big commercial projects, the game is belittling risk, man. You want to get as much risk off and pushed off to your subcontractors as possible. And the only way to do that is again to build rapport with subcontractors. These subcontractors need to know that you're not going to screw them. So. Yes. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about your departments. And we're going to talk about taking risk off your construction company. Thanks for bringing that up. But before we do that, I'm curious regarding your subcontractors. It sounds like you really take care of these guys. And do you ever find where they're like, hey, Joe, or hey, estimator for your company, I got this project. It's a government project. I want I want to work with y'all on it. And they actually bring you deals. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. Nice. It happens all the time for us. We have it. And that happens all the time for us. A lot of metal building guys. Uh, that's where I get the information because people will reach out for like metal building suppliers uh, in during design phase. And so I'll get a call from like one of the guys that we use a lot. It's called Panelized Structures. They're here out of Modesto as well. Um, they'll call us up there say, hey, I got a call from a client about a metal building that he wants to put up, but he needs a GC. We went ahead and recommended you. Uh, would you be willing to partner up with us on it? Or can we get you on a conference call with this owner? Because we'd love to work with you guys on it. Because they just know we run a tight ship, right? So we got, that's part of that, right? As you build that rapport with subcontractors, you follow through with making sure that they're making money that they expected on every single one of their projects. And if they can continue and know that they're going to be profitable with you as the GC, they're going to keep giving you bids. And it's good. You get bids that way. We do that all the time. Yeah. I haven't checked your Google presence. You don't really need it in commercial and government, but you all have some type of process where you're like, hey, subcontractor, you did a good job. I'm going to leave you all five-star review. Uh, you all need to do the same to us. 
Do y'all have anything? No, like that's that? a great idea, though, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna write that shit down, <laughs> no, uh, dude. I, I know it. It works. I know. I know. I believe it. I actually, you know, um, when I took when I took the company over four years ago, we that is something that I've been trying to push. So we actually updated our uh, just recently. We updated over the last three years ago. We updated our website. Um, and now we're keeping our website up to date, which is good with ongoing pictures. Uh, we're also have a subcontractor portal there where they can see our subcontract verbiage waivers of subrogation. We have a client portal as well. So we're starting that process. We're just starting. Honestly, we're just starting to have like a social media presence. Um, I haven't seen any major results from the social media side yet, um, but I'm still working around that. I did this year. Um, I took a big step. We're putting together um, informational videos uh, for our clients. One of the things we find from our clients is that they just don't know. You get a lot of one-off clients when you're doing jobs that are like $5 million or, or like even less, like a million dollars. These clients, this will be the largest project and only project they will ever do, right? Like this, uh, if I do like a 15 to $20 million project, if I push those ranges, those clients are usually reoccurring builders, right? They're going to be building. They're very savvy. So when you get those one-off clients, these, they get nervous. And so when you, but they're great jobs to do too, because you're working with people that are owner operators that just they have a love for their business and they just want to have this fantastic building or this fantastic improvement and they don't want to get gouged on it right so you what i'm trying to do is what i just did and started recently with a local marketing company was we're doing informational videos about right now the first one we did is just on contract types like hey what are the contract types out there they're stipulated some they're guaranteed max price contracts and what do they mean and how do they relate to your project so we're actually going to be releasing a couple of videos over the next uh, year our goal is to do a series of 10 videos over the next three years but a couple of videos that are just informational videos that we can send to our clients to let them know where they're at um, and what stage of the project hey this is the rough carpentry or this is the rough framing stage this is what you're going to find and this is when you're going to want to come out here and make sure the outlets are in the right locations and stuff like that because that's what we're finding is that a lot of clients just don't know what they're getting into. Construction isn't rocket science, but man, people literally don't know like what they're getting into and how to like all the stuff and all the facets behind it. So we are trying to create that informational presence right now, but I have not done anything on the review side, which is something that we, is on our list. It's just, it hasn't been up there because we get a lot, of, most of our stuff is word of mouth. Dude, I'm going to connect you with uh, Ralph Locklear. He has Southeastern General Contractors. And he is like yourself, a advanced savvy GC, and he makes some epic content online that generates a lot of business for him. So I want to connect you two because so that way you can see what he's doing, get some ideas and crush it, it even more. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah for it. sure. So now let's dive into federal construction secrets. Now you talked about protecting yourself and mm -hmm. taking risk off you. So I want to talk about bonding. What are ways that you're increasing your bonding and what are ways that you're protecting your company using bonding as a strategy to, to put to make the subs get the bond on the old job? Yeah. Um, generally speaking, it's I, we to increase our bonding, you have to have equity in the company. Right. So they want to look at they want to look at making sure that you have you're highly capitalized in the company, you have good backlog, but you don't have excessive backlog. So it's always this kind of balancing act of how much money are we going to leave in the company? 
at the end of this year to increase our bonding based off of the type of work that we're going to be going for. So we're we're always kind of managing that to say, do we want to expand our bonding capacity? Do we need bonding capacity? A lot of times when you're in the private arena, you don't need bonding capacity at all. So it's like because they all the jobs, no matter no matter the size, at least for the, what we've been doing. I mean, I just did a ten million dollar project that didn't require any sort of bond. So the a lot of it all kind of depends on uh, the type of work that you're going after. On the government side, you just have to be real careful. Like we're having that conversation today. Um, in fact, with uh, my CFO about that seventy-five million dollar unicorn that we're going after, right? If I do that $75 million unicorn, I'm going to have zero bonding capacity. Even though that job is not bonded, it's not a bonded project for me. Um, it's $75 million uh, job, not bonded, which is great. My bonding company looks at the backlog and says, this is more backlog than you're used to, and we're going to hold up the bonding for it. So you're constantly trying to address, like, what are the projects that you want to plug into your backlog, and how is it going to affect your bonding? What we do with trying to belittle risk if the project budget can afford it, we'll have subcontractors go ahead and bond specific portions of the work if they have the capability to do so. So good it. opportunity. Yeah, it's a good opportunity to do so. It doesn't, the problem with it, it doesn't necessarily take away your need to bond it, right? So you're still gonna, if you're doing a public job, they're still gonna force you to bond it as well. Um, the, the entire dollar amount, including the cost of the subcontractor that you're bonding. It does belittle some risk if you find a subcontractor that's way low and they're like, look, I'm not pulling my bid and you're still really concerned about how low they are. You can have say, hey, are you willing to bond this job? Right. And usually those bonds for them are, you know, two percent, two and a half, two and a half percent. Yeah, yeah, two and a half to three percent, depending on where like sub it is and what trade it is and what rates they have. Right. So. We um, that's where we have to work with those subcontractors. So we usually, if we have a sub that's really low, that's, that says, "Hey, I got everything," we'll include money in there to bond him, so that he has that he uh, we have a bonded subcontractor. So that if he does bail on it, and the project's large enough, we can go from we can we can make sure that we're covered with him. That going through that bonding process, if the sub fails, is even if he fails, is a horrible process to go through, and it's not easy. So it doesn't necessarily belittle, it belittles the dollars of risk, um, but it doesn't uh, belittle the headache that you're going to deal with with it. So generally speaking, I don't like bonding subs. Um, I only will look at projects that I can do. I very rarely will bond subs because it means that I don't, if I haven't bonded some, it means I don't have confidence in their number. I'm going to have problems and management problems, which is going to take up more bandwidth which is going to keep me from getting other profitable projects. What are some strategies that you are finding yourself implement to protect your construction company, whether it's on the job to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to as mm -hmm. per the scope or whether it's insurance, you just mentioned bonding. What are strategies you're implementing to protect yourself specifically in these government projects? On the government side, there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of protection from the client because the contracts are usually delivered by the by the city, county, state. Like so, you're dealing with whatever they're dealing with. Um, the strategies that we have to do is on the subcontract level, right? And so, on the subcontract level, it's how you contract your subs, making sure that you're not putting quantities in your subcontractor proposals is key. Like 
you are not doing the takeoff. They are doing the takeoff. They provided the estimate. They're the expert. Let them deal with the quantity issues. Subcontractor says, I got 200 lights. That's fantastic. I'm just saying you have all the lights in the plans. I'm not saying that you have 200 lights. So that's one thing I would say is to protect yourself is to stay away from stay away from quantity takeoffs included in estimates and do not include their proposals into your base contracts. Um, the other thing you want to do uh, with your sub base is make sure you have timeframes associated with their submittals and making sure they get their submittals in a lot. Right now you're dealing with extended timeframes, purchasing materials and getting them in on uh, lead times for that. So knowing that you're going to, from a sub that you're going to have a full blown submittal within five days of signing the contract is good because now it puts the onus on the, you get that submittal, you look at it, produce it out to the owner. And now the owner it's on them and they're the one holding up the process. So your goal is whoever's you basically is whose monkey is it, right? You want to push that monkey either onto the sub and you grab that monkey, you put it up on the owner and that's the way you got to do it. So you're really managing on a subcontract level, um, the other thing you do is got to have really good insurance, man. Uh, so making sure that your subcontractors are insured properly, um, uh, signing waivers of subrogation is a big thing. They basically they um, that basically lets the subcontractor know that they're going to be responsible for their issues in, in the event that there is some sort of legal issue. We set up in our um, we set up in our insurance agreements that they will indemnify us in the event uh, that we get sued or have an issue with an owner regarding their work, right? So their insurance will pick up the legal litigation associated with any sort of lawsuit that comes associated with their work, which means I forego all the legal fees. So I had one, wow. I've only had, I've only had one, I've only had one lawsuit at Simile, thankfully. I know. Dude, I, know I need you to forward that to me. That's like, please. You can get our subcontract on our website, honestly. So, But basically the way we set it up is that we want their insurance. We want anything that comes in. I had one job that I had a lawsuit on. Um, it actually really sucked. The client, it, the client was removed from the site. His wife had died in the middle of construction. Um, he removed himself. He had his manager. He had a manager that was a, it was a car dealership. He had a manager trying to run it. The guy literally didn't know what he was doing, signed all these change orders. And then at the end of the job, we're like, we don't want it. You know what I mean? We like the owner's like, my guy wasn't supposed to sign all that stuff, but we had already done the work, ended up having to go through a legal battle trying to get this. One of the things that they do, clients will do when they're entering into a legal battle is they're going to try to do a countersuit of some sort. They're going to try to sign some sort of defect claim to be able to offset the cost of what they owe you. That's the strategy that they use in litigation. So that's a really great strategy for a client because what that does is that they put a lot of legal burden on the GC itself to not only fight for the money that the GC wants, but to defend themselves against some sort of arbitrary legal claim, right? So the arbitrary legal claim that they were coming in was they're like, the stucco isn't good enough, right? They had issues with the stucco. The stucco was totally fine, right? But because they actually sued us, we had to, we had to defend ourselves against these issues that they were claiming that they were having with the exterior stucco. I didn't want to hire a legal team to be able to do that because it was going to be a, a year and a half of back and forth with legal. So what I what we had, we had our subcontractor because he indemnifies us through our subcontract agreement, carry the carry the legal fees associated with the defense. 
So now my subcontractor's insurance company provides me attorneys to, to defend us against the client regarding their issue. So it was fantastic. You ultimately get free legal service out of it. A lot of subcontractors don't want to do that. A lot of insurance companies don't want to do that, but they will. And they do. And they do all the time. I, I know that they do because that's exactly how I would say on a negotiated standpoint, I would say that we would do probably 95% of our subcontracts are contracted that way. Sub subcontractors will lean hard the other way. And depending on the scope of work, we'll go ahead and waive that. Like with major trades, like electrical, mechanical, plumbing, structural trades, we won't waive it. It's absolutely because there will be, if there's an issue with plumbing that comes in down the road, I don't want to have to hire legal counsel to defend it. I want the subcontractor to be able to defend me. And that's how we set up our subcontract, subcontract agreements. But if it's like partitions and accessories, I probably am not going to do it because the issues with the partitions and accessories are going to be much cheaper than whatever I'm going to pay in some sort of legal fee with it. I can just go ahead and take care of it because I'll never even deal with a legal fee when it comes to partition accessories, you know? So you got yeah. kind of, wait, 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 wait. dude, you just dropped some serious bombs. Like I'm definitely going to need to find your subcontract agreement. Cause it sounds like it's got some wise tactics inside of it. Um, now, with that being said, you have these projects going. You're a paper contractor, which means you're 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 basically organizing everything, you're managing everything, and your experts, the subcontractors, are getting it all done. That's what I do as well. I'd like for you to share with our audience how you manage these projects. Like, do you have somebody you send out to manage your subs? Do you make them take photos on company cam? Do do you have liquid damages inside of your subcontract? Um, do you like, what do you do to make sure the, the tactics I just emptied to make sure it's getting yeah. done properly? So the first part is just making sure that step one is making sure you bring the sub to contract in the fashion that we want to make sure he's contracted. Right. So we have to grab his proposal. We shake out, we shake out his proposal after we've been, the owner says, Hey, it's your job. Here's your contract. Go to, go to town. So we're really, we grab his proposal. We look at it and we say, okay, here's your subcontract agreement that we've drafted. We'll send it out to him. Usually because of all the subs, they've worked with us a lot that are, we have a, we kind of spread it out as much, as much as we can with our subs because you don't want to overwhelm them. But generally speaking, most of our subs just sign your subcontract and send it back every now and then you'll get red lines that you need to deal with that they're like, Hey, we don't like this. We don't like this. We don't like this. We have to negotiate through those and we'll decide based on risk, whether or not we're going to accept some of that. We do carry a liquidated damage clause in our subcontract agreement to deal with delays. It's very minimal, uh, but it does bring them to the table in the event that they're causing delays. It's about five hundred dollars Yeah. Yeah. It's a really basic one. It's only 500 bucks and it's, and it's whether or not that there's any sort of liquidated damages with the project. Um, the uh, we're going to have a $500 LD that's associated with subcontract delays. A lot of time that gets negotiated out depending on, like, again, if it's a partitions and accessory sub, they're not going to delay our project, right? If it's an electrician, they are definitely going to delay our project and so they, they have the ability to. So we're going to want to make sure we negotiate that a little bit heavier. Once we get them, once we get the terms in place with the subcontract, 
Then it's about working through the submittal process with them as quickly as possible so that we can work through procurement of all their materials. Once we can work through the submittal process, get their materials procured, now we can start working out on site. The way we manage our subcontractors, we use an online program pro called Procore. It's pretty substantial within the industry. It's one of the best online management softwares I've ever seen. So we run all of our uh, subcontracts, daily field reports, plan development, documents, RFIs, submittals, everything all through the online program. It's super accessible by your phone. Most of our superintendents literally can manage, most of our superintendents can literally manage an entire job site through their phone. They take daily pictures, they'll do observation reports on it, safety uh, near misses on it, notifying subcontractors. Uh, we'll send out our RFIs, it automatically, uh, if it's a five-day turnaround uh, requirement by the spec, that our file will go out and after the five days, if they haven't got a response back, Procore will literally ding that architect every single day until he gives us a response. So we use a, that online project management software has been huge for us. We implemented that about six years ago. The only issue I would say with Procore that you gotta be aware of is that they're an IT company, not a construction company. So you are going to get a price hike every single year without failure. Uh, so that's the thing you just got to kind of figure out how to manage into your budgets and manage into your overhead as you're trying to either grow your company or if you don't want to grow your company. I mean, I read, I just read a book called Small Giants that has been fantastic and about it's not necessarily about growing your company. It's about choosing to stay at a specific area, specific sales um, to increase the profitability and the standard of your life right versus just this constant growth right so you got to really kind of decide what you want to do and with Procore the the hard part that I struggle with Procore is that it leans towards you have to grow to, to support the program but it does help out a lot and it does release a lot of overhead if you're doing things from a paperwork side and um, so we just try to keep track of our subcontractors on that basis and we just make sure that our we work through it and we just, our big thing is like follow the process, man. It's really simple. You got a question, email it to us as an RFI. We'll go ahead and get it answered. You respond if there's a price increase. If there is a price increase due to that RFI, we'll send the owner a change order. Don't do the work until the change order is signed. Once it's signed, we move this process through. So as long what we try to do with our subs is we try to force the process. We tell them every single time it's the same damn thing, dude. Don't do work without change orders. Don't do work without stuff in writing. Like that's the reality. If you guys start doing it, once you start going outside of that realm, and a lot of GCs will go outside of that realm and things get busy and then it bites them in the ass later on down the road. So really making sure that you're staying within those processes consistently is what's going to, it's what's going to drive your sub base. It's like, Hey, did you send me an RFI? Well, no. Well, I need an RFI. Let's let's do this process. I know it's formal. I appreciate that, but that's the kind of ship I run. I don't want it informal. Like informal crap creates bad projects. Like I want to make sure we're formalizing everything and walking through the process. And the way Procore does it online right now, it's so fast. I mean, you can issue an RFI from your phone. It's ridiculous. So it's it's not like it was in the old days. I feel like where you would have these transmittals that need to get hand delivered to the architect and, blah, blah, and it was just a nightmare. I mean, I remember my dad telling me he used to have to carry a bag of quarters as a superintendent just to make <laughs> phone calls at the oh local God. payphone. And I'm oh like, dude, how did you guys even build these things? I'm like, 
they, they built the they built like the Eiffel Tower with this shit. Like that's crazy. How did you do that? Like without a cell phone? It's 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 mind-boggling to hear. So I think that with technology, really leaning into technology has been a huge help for our subs too to make sure that they're performing properly. So man, take a sip of water. You just dropped some more bombs. Like I am I'm I'm taking all this in and I'm just curious, like the buyout process, because most of the uh, a handful of the government contracts that I've done have been zero money down deals, meaning like I don't have to put any money down. My subcontractor pays for everything. I deal with all the submittals and the paperwork. And every time I get a payment, you know, I pay my subcontractor immediately. Do you do zero money down deals where in the past have you done them where it didn't cost you anything? Your subs pay for everything. And you basically are just facilitator. And when you get your money, you pay them immediately. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's pretty standard actually of how we do work. Like we, California doesn't have the law that is paid when paid, right? We have to pay our subcontractors within what's ever dictated within our timeframes and the subcontract agreement, no matter what. But there is that whole concept from subs that they understand. It's like, we're not here to cash flow our client, our our goal is for our client to cash flow the project. So what we try to do with that um, is we try to build enough money into the front end of the project to deal with what we perceive to be any cash flow issues. Um, so we'll try to build our schedule of values where our mobilization. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you have to build, you have to build some money into those just to deal with cash flow. Most savvy clients are, they know that, right? They know that you're trying to build a little bit of money on the front end. So they're going to, they're going to watch that. So there's this like kind of give and take that you got to work with your clients, see what you can get on the front end to help your clients out. One of the things I could say about being a contractor, those cash is king. Like if you got cash in the bank, the ability to be able to maneuver issues with payments with subcontractors delays and payments from clients you have ways to around it so if i have issues getting a payment with a subcontractor or a client um, whether it's a public uh, project or private project um i end up what i end up doing is i still cash flow the subcontractors that's my goal like i want to make sure I, I i draw them out to the max of my subcontract agreement because i don't want to cash flow them i'm not a bank but generally speaking if i have to pay them in advance of getting paid uh what i do is i usually negotiate a rate with the with the subcontractor that says look i'm not a bank but if you want me to play the bank and because my client's not paying me i can give you money uh prior to being paid at, you know, um, a five or 6% discount on that dollar, right? So a lot of times what we do is we will actually use the cash that we have in the bank to make more money with our subcontractors for early pay because we get a lot of early pay discounts. Uh, like you get like from suppliers, you get like two 10 net 30s, where it's like if you pay, you get a 2% discount in 10 days or you have to pay the full amount in 30 days. Um, with our subcontractors, a lot of our sub basin understands that whether or not our contract dictates that we have to pay you within 45 days, they understand that cash flow is really the reality of the game. And they're not going to sit there and sue you if you're at 55, 60 days on, on, in the rears on a payment because your owner hasn't paid you. And a lot of that is because you built rapport with the sub, you're in it as a team, right? You're like, Hey, how can we make this work? Like, and so what we end up doing is we try to use the heavy cash that we have 
as not only as a safety net with our subcontractors to make sure our subcontractors aren't drawn out by the long payment structures that you have on public cycles. Like public billing cycles usually are 60 to 75 days. Like you have to have some cash flow to be able to deal with it, right? Subcontractors usually want to get paid within 30 to 45 days, right? So what we end up doing, because it's a public arena project, the, the subcontractors already know the billing terms with the client. It's in the public bidding documents. So they have to deal with that anyways. So anything earlier than that, we will usually let the subcontractor know is that if you want to get paid earlier, we need a discount. So we actually try to make an extra percentage point on early pay if we can get that with our subcontractors. And so we just make our money work for us a little bit. Uh, which is good. You got to put. You got to be careful with it because you can't do it on all projects. And depending on the amount of money that you have in the bank, you got to be careful because you want to keep your own cash flow good. But if you have the uh, if you have the capital to be able to do early pay with the subs, not only do they love you for it and give you great pricing for it, but you usually get discounts from the subcontractor to provide payments early too. So you're doing all these projects all over a, a section of California. You have an mm -hmm. office location somewhere in California. And I'm sure mm -hmm. you've come across this where it is a situation where you have to have a local office requirement in order just to bid the deal. This is doesn't happen often. You might not have the answer for it, but that would be epic if you did. Have you ever, how do you overcome the local office requirement when you don't have a local office? We had one local office requirement that we had to do in Southern California. So we just opened up an office. <laughs> that, was one of them. Uh, that was a bad idea. Uh, like going, looking back at it, it was like, why did we do that? We had a, what the way we've done it, um, the way we would do it now uh, after doing it wrong the first time, because <laughs> we went out, I mean, we had, a, we had a job in Victorville and we had probably three or four projects in the area. And there was another job that came up. It was like, Hey, you have to have a local office requirement. My PM lived in the area. Um, we could have just used his address, right? That's a simple solution for some weird reason. I didn't think about that solution. And it's just my own experience. I'm still learning. I know it is what it is. So we went out and got an office, signed a lease on it and it worked fine. It was good. It kept us going, but we ended up closing that office down about two and a half years later because the work kind of dried up. And that's what I feel like happens with a lot of those local office requirements. Like if you are going after a job that has a local office requirement, if you're making a goal to have like a big section of work in that area, then do the local office requirement and then jam, like find other, like five or six other projects to build in the area to make it worth having a local office. Or just, use your, or just use your PM's address. Or just address. use your PM's <laughs> address. I mean, it depends on the style, style of work. Like we actually needed an office because um, you, you have, when we were doing, we were doing four projects there at the time, there was one job that required a local office. So we were like, you know, we actually could use like a little warehouse in that area right now. But just over time, like we just didn't, we didn't have, a, we didn't decide that we wanted to build up an entire resource uh, network down there. And so we ended up closing it down a couple of years later. Our PM actually moved up north. So um, we still will do satellite projects like that, but the local office stuff, we tend to stay away from now. Well, I'm curious if you didn't have the PM at guy who lived out there, can you think of a creative idea or option of what you would have done? Um, sorry, I need to, I'm running late to a meeting. I just want to make sure I let him know. I apologize. <laughs> no um, worries, bro. No, no, you're good. I was, it's actually my dad. So I, <laughs> he bugs the hell out of me. Um, so the, 
what would we do now um, if I ran into it? It would just be I would need to find a local person in the area that I'm hiring um, that I could use as like a, a sub as an office. Yeah, like a sub. Use a, that's a great idea actually with a sub. I didn't even think of that. I was actually thinking about a PM or super, but yeah, the sub would actually be better to partner up with a sub in that way and say, hey, I want to use. I want to go after this job. I've used you. You're in the area. Can I use your office? And we do this as a JP. You're going to end up having to give them a little percentage of the net profits to be able to use that. But that's usually not that big of a deal. I mean, they'll, they'll be fine with that as long as they're the one getting the work. It guarantees the sub to work too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, so how have you ever had a scenario where it's a mandatory pre-con meeting, but you're like, how have you ever been... What did you do to get out of the mandatory pre-con meeting if it's a faraway job or you didn't want to go to it? What what strategy you use to do the pre-con meeting, but not necessarily having to drive and go sit with with the customer? Well, COVID's kind of changed that for us, um, specifically in California. Those mandatory pre-con meetings are virtual now. Um, so we haven't really ran into that issue as of late, which has been great. On the areas that we have mandatory pre-cons, um, that are way outside of our area. Um, I just don't do them. Um, I won't do the project because it's just outside of my area. So I, I try to like be very selective with the projects that we're doing because a lot, if I spread out my guys so much where they're traveling three or four hours to get to a job site, like the, it, that doesn't yield good culture at a company. It yields, yeah. it, you, you end up paying a lot of money for it. And there, there's not, not, there's not, a, there's not an amount of money that you can pay to deal with the fact that people staying away from their families. Like yeah. at the end of the days, the families matter and the money doesn't, no matter what it is. I mean, you can find those, so you have a lot of traveling supers that'll kind of go anywhere for stuff. And that's just kind of their MO. We have a couple of guys like that. Uh, or had a couple of guys like that, but they're not really in alignment with our culture. So we try to make sure we're hiring people within our culture, which is we're family-based, faith-based company. Uh, we want to make sure that we're uh, we have people that are bought in over the long term with this company. We want loyalty and commitment. Usually, traveling superintendents are they're just going from job to job. They don't care who the GC is, and that's not really the style of superintendent as a company that we want to have. Uh, I know it works with a lot of other companies. It's just. You got to understand what your own core values are and stand firm on them. Yes, yes. Last last question on this topic regarding mandatory site visits. Uh, sometimes they're just like, why do I have to go? I got all the specs. I got everything I need to pr prepare a quote. Do you have any creative strategy to uh, overcome or avoid having to go to a mandatory site visit? I don't, man. If it's mandatory, I mean, I've reached out to clients to see if I can talk them through about not doing a mandatory site visit, but clients want a mandatory site visit for a reason. Um, yeah, I'd be open to suggestions to be honest, because I haven't been able to crack that net. Usually if I tell a client like, Hey, it's just, it's just a ways to go. I got everything on the plans. What am I missing? And I think the problem is, is that you don't not going to those mandatory visits. The client has this feeling says you're not bought in, like you haven't seen the site. So you're not looking at the plans with this enlightenment of seeing the site. And so I haven't been able to crack that nut personally. Like, so if, if I can't make the mandatory site visit, we don't go. I mean, I had, um, I had a job in California for a government uh, wiring job and I just mm -hmm. called a subcontractor and I had him go do my mandatory site visit and him sign in under my, my company name and oh, take cool. all the, have all the photos I needed. And then at the end I said, Hey, feel free to share your card 
to any other GCs that are there, but I plan on using you. Uh, I need you to do this for me. He's like, all right, let's go. Let's do it. Um, and I'm in he just asked, He just acted, act, acted as your representative. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah, no, I, that's not, that's not something I've explored. Um, I didn't even know. That's a great idea though, because he can, anybody can act as your representative there. Anybody. So, and that's cool because it. you can negotiate with the subs right in advance. You're like, yeah, I'll use you on this job if you can hit this mandatory side visit for me. And yeah. That's perfect. Yeah, no, that's a great idea to be able to do that. So I know, you know, you've got to run pretty soon. So I, I, there's so many, so much wisdom our audience is learning from this. I'm curious about um, your, your tactics on percentage complete method and schedule values. Like, how are you, you know, front loading it? What are some mm -hmm. strategies you're doing to front load to be able to get more cash flow on the front end? Uh, you got to separate out what your general requirements are on the schedule of values. So a lot of GCs will have like a general requirements section or general conditions section in their proposal that says I have supervision, project management, project administration, porta potties, trailers, all that stuff, right? So what you want to do is you want to separate some of that stuff out into your schedule of values. And one of the terms we use is mobilization, right? So mobilization is like, okay, what is it going to cost me to just get mobilized on the job site? And you dump in also, you generally speaking, you can bill out the cost of bonds and insurance right off the bat as well. So you, your first billing, like day one, you have a mobilization billing, you have um, a bonds and insurance billing right on day one, in addition to all the profit you have over and above that. So you can kind of measure that mobilization is depending on the complexity of the project, what that looks like. Um, you can break it out as well even further you can be like mobilization office trailer so you can start to break out some of your general requirements so they're front loaded items that they show a task complete the risk with that and um the reason i am very leery of breaking those things out is i tend to make i tend to make more money when my general requirements are higher um in the schedule of values versus the front end money uh, that you would post for uh, to deal with cash flow. Uh, the reasoning behind that is you deal with construction delays constantly on these public jobs because the public arena, the public agencies cannot meet the timeframes in their specs, right? So inevitably, you're, you can get change orders for extended performance. The way they measure those change orders is they take the project duration and they divide it by your general requirements and they give you a daily rate associated with your general requirements. Your general requirements are PM supervision, you know, project administration, trailer, porta potties, temp fencing, all that stuff that you have to run the job. The higher the amount of your GCs, the higher the rate. So if I have like a job uh, for sake of easy math, if I have a, a, um, 10 month project and my general requirements for that project are a million dollars, right? I'm going to have, what is that? A, a million dollars, a million dollars, a million dollars a month in general requirements. Like it, that's, these numbers are obscene. I never get a million dollars a month in general requirements. I'm more like <laughs> 25 to 50, you know, depending on the yeah. but like just to like kind of draw that line. So now you're like, they've approved in the schedule of values, not only the time frame for your schedule, but also the amount of your, uh, also the amount of your general requirements. So now it's a really easy way to say, hey, you've delayed me a day. My on a daily rate, my GCs are you know eight hundred dollars a day or nine hundred dollars a day or a thousand dollars a day, just based off of that simple calculation. 
And there's not a real way for them to find it because all the projects on the, on the uh, public arena are all stipulated sums. So they can't really say, well, justify that cost. This is I'm justifying it by the fact that you've approved my schedule of values and you, I can show you a critical path delay on my schedule. Yes. This is what I've associated with. This is the cost. I have it prorated out over a daily rate. And so usually what I do, what I think is good is unless I know that I'm going to have a cash flow crunch on the project, which which I don't necessarily, we, I mean, we, again, we keep, we try to keep a lot of cash in the company so that we don't deal with cash flow crunches. But if you have, if you have to deal with cash flow, break out your general requirements so that you can front load some billions so that you can grab some money right up front. But I don't recommend and, doing And that. why is, for contractors who still don't get it, why is it important to come to the table during the pre-con meeting and turn in your bonds and your general requirements on the first day what does that do for your construction company in terms of getting your money faster? Uh, it lets them know. It lets the client know exactly where everything's at. So they the expectations are open. They're crystal clear. And you're dealing with those issues on the front end, right? It says, these are my general requirements. This is what I'm going to have on a daily rate. Like my contracts that I write with my clients right now literally define the daily rate of my general requirements in the contract. Like I just wrote a contract the other day. It was a $815 a day calendar day delay in the event I have extended performance due to an owner's change order, right? So we talk about those things right at the pre-con. We want the pre-con, the guys at the pre-con to know right away, this is a problem uh, that you guys need to know about because in the event you delay us, there's going to be extended performance costs and no wow. public no public entity does a really good job of, of addressing extended performance costs and how to address what that cost is. They know how to address the delay itself and how to manage and to prove that delay is true and valid. But the cost for that delay a lot of public entities don't do a really good job managing it. So it's on the contractor to show how their the cost is being incurred. And the way we do it is by loading up our general requirements uh, uh, section in our SOV in very heavy. So we'll grab like, we'll dump profit into it. We'll dump um, some insurance into it. We'll dump some labor into that. So we, as far as our cost is concerned, so that we can build that thing up. So in the event you get a delay, which generally speaking is inevitable, right? There is inevitable delays that you're going to end up getting paid for. You're getting paid at a massive rate to be able to deal with it. Are you, have you ever done that on a government job? That's I do it. All, I just did it on a government job. That's that's wise. That's the first time I've ever heard that. And I'd love if like you could share. Maybe we have another call, or you can share that SOV mm-hmm. and how you did that because this is new to me. I love that. Mm-hmm. Hey, curious about uh, your departments. We're gonna wrap mm-hmm. this up. We're gonna talk about your company um, because y'all are doing big things. Simile Construction Services. What are your departments? What different departments do you have? And how is it running? How are you running such a tight ship? So we have three departments. We have business development deals with sales and estimating. We have operations that deals with the building side of it. And then we have a finance department. Um, we have a full-blown CFO. Not a lot of contractors have a full-blown CFO. I find it um, not only beneficial for my company, but just on a personal side when I'm buying real estate or doing stuff with the money that I'm carving out of simile um, that I have a CFO that can help me analyze stuff on my personal side. So I think there's a huge benefit for having a CFO if you can afford one. Um, 
I run currently right now, I'm running the business development side. I have a director of ops that runs my operations. He's my uncle. <laughs> and then I have a, and then I have a, a CFO named Dave Henke who runs my, uh, all my finance, um, all the business development sales. I tend to focus on usually most contractors that are running their own businesses. The business development and the estimate is really the crux because the construction, the operation side is Really, it's just like it's feeding the beast, right? You already know how to do that. That's that's usually contractors are great mechanics, right? They know how to be able to build shit. What contractors are not good at is estimating in sales or financing, managing the books, right? So you really got to make sure that like those two categories are not like wings of your company, but part integrate integrated into your company and really so that you have like communication about uh, across all three platforms of your of your departments um yeah now we you and i you and i are both go abundance bros which is a mm -hmm. group of epic dudes who do cool stuff and have a high net worth and audience if you're not a part of uh, go abundance just go to goabundance.com tell them i sent you justin and get join it it's epic i'm curious have or you can tell them that i sent them because then i can get a discount from the abundance no 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 I <laughs> hey hey now hey you're on my show, I know, right? I know, right? <laughs> hey but you are the one dropping bombs but seriously send them tell them justin sent you hey um life life insurance have you explored becoming your own bank have you dove down that path and uh you know have your own self-directed life insurance policy no, we do have a, we just do it. We do a standard life insurance policy with our uh, employees through our benefit package. I haven't looked at. I'm going to connect you. I'm going to connect yeah. you with a guy. I have no benefit to me, but yeah. I used, to, I mean, you literally are become your own bank and mm -hmm. your money makes good money, good return, uh, 8% and you can take it out. Um, so I'm going to connect you with my guy. Um, yeah. I learned that. I learned that another high end mastermind, that strategy. Yeah. Let me know, um, man. That sounds awesome. As a thank you, like that's the least I can do for you because it's benefited my life substantially. And I want to do mm -hmm. that for you as well. Curious about how are, are you familiar with, do you have a trust? Are you protecting your assets through a trust? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a, I, I feel like construction is more like a harvesting company. Like you really got to harvest the profits out of it when it's there um, and put it into, put profits into more passive style investments. Um, I'm right now, I don't have a whole lot of passive investment because I'm really on the grind side of my business life. Like I'm really trying to just build, um, build business, build wealth through the construction company that we own. Um, so I'm not doing a whole lot of passive stuff, but I do have a trust for my family and we kind of run everything through the living trust for it. So any sort of side stuff that I do, like we have a couple of rentals that we run that's through our living trust. The house that I'm in right now is through our living trust. Um, so yeah, we do, we do the whole thing, uh, through that. A lot of it, it's huge. My, my dad actually has his own living trust as well. And that just the tax benefits to being able to have those assets to be able to transfer out to the next generation is just incredibly good. And not to mention the, uh, protection, you know, it's sheltered. Oh, yeah. Sheltered. Oh, yeah. Your, your assets are sheltered and mm. not to mention if there's ever a divorce down the road, you know, the actual bloodline gets the asset, not the divorcee. Mm. Yeah. So I'm, I want to wrap this up. I want to talk to you about an investment that you've made that has surprised you. An investment that I've made that I've, that surprised me. Um, I did one investment when I was just starting out 
on the development side. I was 23 years old. Um, I bought a house on the corner of a street here in Ceres that had a had a Walgreens on one quarter and it was just an old dilapidated house on the other corner. It was a relatively uh, high traffic hitted street. I bought the house with my credit card, um, um, which was, it was just super dilapidated. We bought it, I want to say it was like 180,000 for the house. Um, got some points. Yeah, I got some points. It was good. I was living on rice and beans for two years, but it was, it was good. But we were, we were young and my wife and I decided to take a risk. We had a couple of partners in it. Um, bought a house with our credit card. I brought a realtor out there. We were thinking about converting the house to just some multifamily stuff. Realtor came out there and was like, if you buy the property behind this too, I bet I could sell it to CVS. I'm like, that sounds fantastic. So we pulled out more credit card debt and bought the house behind us as well. And uh, we ended up developing the land and sold to CVS uh, no more than three months after we had finalized the purchase on the back house. That was super surprising for me. Um, what I realized with that is uh, I had no idea what I was doing, but thankfully I had a ton of people that were, I knew a lot about the development side, about the paper development of property because I had been doing that with my dad and through college and stuff. So I had understood that process. But as far as like really thinking how well that property was gonna perform, um, man, it was, I mean, we bought both houses for like 380,000 and we sold it to CVS for 1.6 million. And it, it closed out about a year and a half later. And so we just had to paper develop that whole property. We didn't do any sort of construction work on it at all. So wow. that was a, that was a huge win. Um, I got a lot of failures too. <laughs> so that, was, that was, a, that one was the one that kicked it for me because I was like, man, dude, you can make money doing this stuff. So I tried a bunch more after that. Did that beer and wine supply company after that? That didn't. Let's really talk about <laughs> let's talk about an expensive lesson that was painful, where and a lesson uh, you learned from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had hired an estimator um, to run our estimating department at Simile at Simile a few years back. Uh, we wanted to give our goal is to grow. Um, we've tried growing three or four times and just have never been able to breach and stay above the fifty million dollar marker. I do. I'm again. I'm. I have a couple of unicorn projects that we're debating on whether or not to go to contract on them. It looks like they're in the bag, but it does, it does make us scary because it's expansive growth. So my dad was trying to grow at the time we were, uh, we had decided we were, and I had just bought into the company or was this before I bought in? Yeah, I was running it as before I bought in, but I was all about this new estimator. His name was Mark. This guy just his resume, his personality, it just totally fit. Everything was fantastic. He locked us into about $25 million of work of negative profit. And uh, we invested a ton of time and money into this guy. He built out our entire estimating department with like four or five people. Uh, once we realized what had happened, um, we were in a down, we were, it, we were in a company downturn due to the issue. And we're like, dude, we are going to be out a ton of money on this. Uh, we ended up having to do salary reductions. I ended up dropping a bomb on the estimating department. I laid off five people in one day. Um, I'm just like, you guys are gone. And I didn't have an estimator for about four months. Um, and then I was doing the estimating myself at that time because it was just, we had, we put all our eggs in this basket with no check and balance. And that was the issue is that there wasn't a check and balance. So we really have been focusing what we've built since then is a bunch of protocols for checks and balances to make sure that our margins are being protected 
um, that we're bidding things properly. We're making sure that we have exclusions dialed in and that no person can independently decide what the profit is in our company, not even myself. Um, I want to have buy-in from our team based off of where we're currently sitting on overhead, what we're currently sitting on backlog. Um, so we're having, we're way more team oriented right now and a lot more communication, but I mean, that, that situation probably cost our company 2 million bucks over a two year period. And that, I mean, that'll wipe us out. Like uh, that'll wipe at the time it, it was, it, we don't, it almost did. And that was just putting your trust in the wrong people and then not having a good check and balance at the time. Uh, yeah, I would say I'm, that was probably the worst investment that I ever, investments in labor are the most uh, advantageous and most risky uh, out yeah. there, you know. So, so the lessons you learned are the checks and balance, you got to have proper margins, you have to have exclusions in your contracts, any other lessons on that? Because that's an expensive lesson. That's the most expensive lesson I've had on my podcast. Yeah, it was very <laughs> expensive. The other thing is just keep cash in the bank, man. Um, when the economy, if the economy takes a downturn, have enough money to keep your team because your team is going to get poached. Um, people that do have money and do have good jobs, they're going to be offering massive amounts of money to grab the team members. If you have to lay them off or reduce salaries, you're going to lose those guys. And what the 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 problem is, is that the negative effect of that over the future um, could be more substantial than the pain of paying those people now. So keep cash in the bank. Uh, like right now, we are in a heavy cash position. We have about $4.3 million in the bank right now. Uh, we only honestly need probably about 750000 to operate on a uh, operate our company and keep good cash flow. So we want to have a bunch of cash in the bank. So if we run into issues, but like even now, like projects, a lot of the projects that we're doing right now, they require us to front load the projects for the owners because the financing can't keep up with the construction cost. So we're, we're financing projects ourselves right now. And then, and then you get, you, yeah, you get that paid back by the bank or the owner. And yeah. Yeah. And with interest too, you know, I mean, so we got like, we have like, I, it, it just adds more money to our bottom line, but having the money allows us to do the work, allows us to keep people busy. And then once the financing finally does through, then we, uh, we get the money back. You know, and everybody's still got a job. Wow. Love it. I'd say the last two questions are, what would you, y'all have been through a lot. Y'all have, y'all have had ups and downs. Simile Construction is now crushing at $35 million, doing tens of millions of dollars in government contracts and private and commercial. What would you say is the best process in your company that you or your father or your family is most proud of? Uh, I'm really proud of the way we track our profit now. Um, so we didn't really have any sort of accountability structure on profit and we would see profit fade. Uh, this is before, this is before I took it over, but we had my dad, when we were, when we were smaller, we were doing about 15 million when my dad was running it. We've, we've doubled in size since I've taken it over, which has been great. Um, and we're projecting to double in size within the next two years as well, which is awesome. But what we ran into is that at 15 million, it's easy to keep your finger on the pulse of where your profits are sitting on jobs. So when you're communicating with your bonding company, they, you can give them reliable profit projections and you don't have to show, you're not showing profit fade. 
once you get larger and you start to have more projects and it becomes harder to keep your pulse in the job, you really want to be able to manage your gross profit. You want to make sure that you are not having profit fade over the long term um, because that profit fade will lose your bonding. So you want to be able to make sure that. So we implemented a process called estimating misses and extra work over budgets. Um, and so anytime there's a, an estimating miss, um, that that uh, commitment, that cost, that potential cost goes back to the estimator for the estimator to try to figure out how A, it was missing the estimate, if it was missing the estimate, or if there, the money was budgeted elsewhere, or what the expectations were, right? So if we can figure out a way to belittle that estimating miss, so I got an estimating miss the other day for about $4,500 for some uh, windows uh, that weren't accounted for in one of our budgets. We look at like, dang, $4,500 hit, right? That's right to our bottom line. So how do we address that? So we look at that $4,500 hit, we gave it to our estimator, we reviewed the plans, we realized that that, that miss is a quantity error actually on the plans. And it's not an estimating miss, it's a miss by the owner. And so we were able to push that back into our operations through this process that we have, push that back into our operations, give them an avenue to go after it with the client. And we were able to actually make money on what could have been an estimating miss. And before that time frame, uh, our process is that, that it would just flow right through. There was no back check. Our PM would just swipe it off as an estimating miss and the profit would be gone. So we have that uh, that we've addressed now. We also have what's called extra work over budget. And those are operational problems. So like you go out there and you frame a door wrong, right? We have to go out there and reframe the door and it's an operational problem. Or you schedule a subcontractor to come out and you're not ready for them. And now they hit you with a remote to come back out for it. That's an oper operational miss into your budget. It's not something that you were expecting. So we try to, what we do is we track that on a percentage basis and on a dollar basis every single week. So we see like where we're sitting on that to make sure that we're finding anything that's reoccurring. So like we had found just, just over the last uh, six months that we were getting reoccurring estimating misses for export that we weren't calculating our export properly. So we found that issue out. We discussed it as a team and we figured out a way now in the next estimates to make sure that we're not having export related estimating misses anymore, right? Where, so you find those, those uh, systemic problems through these misses that you get um, through your project. Um, and then you try to figure out ways to avoid those systemic problems. We had on the operational side, we are getting misses on, we had our, we have a very small self-performed crew, uh, but the work that they do do, you know, is important to us. It's mostly customer related, but I just had our, our guys go out and pour some concrete and they just did a shoddy job and ended up having to rip it out and replace it. That's an extra work over budget. And so we had to do that. It happened twice on two different projects in a matter of two months. And I'm like, this is systemic. We need to do a training for our guys if we're going to have them do concrete. So we did a training for our guys. We actually did it right out in my front patio and had them pour concrete for me at my own house where I brought my guys out. We did a full-blown training for them to say, this is how you pour concrete so that in the future, we don't have another extra work over budget. And they've been formally trained in those categories. So those two processes of managing costs, managing issues before you have cost to it is the goal but if even managing knowing what those issues are understanding if they're systemic and then addressing that systemic problem is is key and that's the awareness factor that we have with the estimating miss process and the ewab process 
gosh, dude, this is fire, dude. You know, Joseph Simile with Simile Construction Services, they have mastered the four-part federal construction secrets. They know how to find the deals. They know how to bid the deals. They know how to get the jobs done. And they know how to bill their client, their government properly. Y'all are crushing it, man. And the last thing I want to say, last thing I want to say is you, you have a process. You, If you could just, in a couple sentences, you, you're estimating the deals, then you have an operations check it. And then how does the process work? Mm-hmm. One last thing. One last time. No, your estimator. Nice. So get, yeah, so our estimators come in, they bid a job. If we get the job awarded, uh, the owner says it's our job. I, as the owner, want to control all the contracts. That's just a, a thing for me. I want to make sure the contracts are delivered properly and it keeps me a pulse of what jobs we're doing, right? So I will write up and work through the owner and the client with the contracts as good rapport building. Once those contracts are done, we try to get all of our subcon. We transfer that project. We have a meeting called a transfer of information meeting. And what estimating does is this brain dump of this is how we bid the job. This is how we planned on building it. Here's our project schedule that we put together. Here's our sub team. Here's our job roadblocks. Here's the insurance requirements. There's everything you need to know about the project ops and operations will take that. They'll grab it and then they start to shake out those bids so they'll look at our subcontractor bids that we provided they'll confirm the scopes reconfirm the scopes with them draw them into contract so over two weeks we try to get all of our subcontracts out about 80 percent of the big guys really you really want to get the front end guys and the big guys done in the first two weeks you'll get some stragglers like partitions and accessories uh, painting and i don't know uh cleaning final cleaning those will kind of tailor in whenever they do, but they're small enough portions of the job that they, you're not really concerned about it, right? So once you get that 80% done, you really focus on your submittal process. You get all your submittal done. You work through your procurements. You find out if you have any procurement issues. In the meantime, you're having weekly meetings, not only with your subcontractors, but also with your clients to walk through where you're sitting on the process and how the process is going through construction. You're dealing with all of your owner-related delays, city-delayed relays, any sort of issues that you may have on a job you're addressing it weekly not only with your ownership but with your sub team Uh, we get to the end of the job and we punch it out internally we'll do an internal i just did a job walk for a church that we're finishing up we do an internal punch list prior to the owner coming out so we want our punch list our goal is to have our punch list less than a page right we want to to be able to fit our punch list less than a page with our clients and nine times out of ten our punch list end up being half owner requested change orders half issues that we need to address out in the field and so, and then we hand them over the keys and we throw a grant, we, uh, we throw a, a party for them at the end with a big old tree or basket or something to show, show our love for them, depending on the project. If it's a good feel good project, like we just did uh, Jessica's house in Turlock and man, what a beautiful project. It, it, they deal with grief counseling in a massive 16,000 square foot house. Like it's just beautiful house a retreat they, uh, kind of place oh it's amazing the whole courtyard is amazing I mean, it was just absolutely beautiful and it was such a great feel-good project similarly ended, ended up even donating money to them at the end of the job just saying hey we're just going to give you a credit not only did the job go good for us but we want to give you guys a credit because we think what you guys are just doing is amazing that's part of the reason we live all the nonprofit stuff is just it's nice to have subs and it's nice for our subs and it's nice for our employees to see that you have um you have a feel-good project every now and then instead of just a office complex that really doesn't you know 
Yeah, it's great. It's yep. an office call. It's fantastic. It pays the bills. But when you do something like that, like uh, these nonprofits for churches where you can really see and these nonprofits for like Jessica's house and AgSafe and all these other ones that we've done, you can you can just see the love that these people have for. I mean, these people literally scratched and scraped for every dollar that they have in these budgets. So being able to like do those has just been huge. So we'll do something huge at the end and we try to um do really great brown groundbreaking ceremonies with them and openings and yeah that's a process man it's a dude fun. talk about talk about recording that right there for your marketing that's that right there you could use for your marketing that's brilliant <laughs> yeah and on top of that that's a great way to increase your culture within your company the last thing we got for a contractor who's on the fence who's maybe doing less than 10 million and they're looking at hey i want to learn how to do federal uh contracts what would you say to that person I would say go for it. Um, the thing that you're going to need to watch out for really is making sure that your uh, the prevailing wage requirements are being addressed properly. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork that's associated with it. So talk to your accountant uh, that's somebody that specializes in that. Um, you want to make sure that you're dealing with all those items because they will bite you in the ass. And that's really where you get hit. Everything else on a, is actually a lot easier. The public arena is like way easier than the private because people aren't as um it's it's not as personal right the public arena that the, it's public money so it's not as personal when you say hey you got an issue with your plans you tell that to a client that is building their a one-off like car dealership or something like that this that change order is coming right out of their pocket you know what i mean it's like so hard to have that conversation with them so on the public side it's clear so like it's those are the easy things to address you're like not in the plans it doesn't exist it's just like that old yellow pages commercial and they say okay we're going to give you a change order for it and the change order terms are dictated in your contract and everything's very simple the hardest part is managing the prevailing wage requirements sub sign-in sheets like all the stuff that you have to do to make sure that you're working with the unions properly and all that stuff you have to make sure you're dialed in on that and if you don't feel like you have that comfortability it will eat you alive so make sure you're prepped for that you've communicated with the right people and that you have somebody that can manage that in your office making sure that your dos 140 forms go out to the unions to let them know that you're going to be doing specific work on at a trade that they're responsible to provide because the unions may want to send out somebody to your job site for training and they have that right in the state of california to do that so really having somebody that can that knows the prevailing wage sector is huge i would suggest abc is a really good resource for that if you haven't had that that's a really good resource uh, the other good resource i would say would be your accountant they usually have bookkeepers and people on uh, other gcs that have had that look for a construction related accountant they were going to have a lot more resources on how to address those items um, and you'll end up paying more money on these front ends. But once you get used to that process of dealing with uh, dealing with how to deal with the uh, prevailing wage requirements and the payrolls associated with it and all the requirements with it, once you get used to it, it becomes easy. It really does because it's like every it's it's very standard. It becomes standard building practices, just like you're doing a project. So that's what I Dude, recommend. Man, and Upwork is another good resource. We found our mm. accountant person who does all our prevailing, all of our all our wage, everything, Alpha Upwork, mm -hmm. somebody in the Philippines, and you know they're a great asset for our company. This has yeah. been a blast. Joseph, you have crushed it, dude. Joseph Simile with Simile Construction Services. 
uh, expert contractor doing big things in the private, commercial, and the government sector. $35 million this year. Best of luck to you closing on that $75 million project, bro. Thank you for being on the Real Construction. Thanks for being on the Real Construction Owners Podcast today. You got it, man. Thanks so much, Justin. You have a good day, bud.